God. He did this to me in both services. You know, he sings these songs, get the blood pressure all high. See, the first service, it was even worse because we sang those first two songs, you know, and I'd get all excited. And then I got to stop and do the announcements. So I'm blood pressure's all up. I'm breathing heavy. Then I got to do the announcements. I got to walk over here and then do, oh my gosh. <sighs> okay. June 2nd, 1925, the Yankees had a first baseman named Wally Pip, all right? His name has kind of been used as, an, as a verb lately, getting Wally Pipped, okay? Here's, here's why we call it getting Wally Pipped. Wally Pipp was the first baseman who had a headache on June the 2nd, 1925. So the Yankees, first, or the, Yankees, uh, the Yankees manager looks down the bench and sees a 21-year-old sitting down at the end of the bench and says, hey, go get in there, all right? That was Lou Gehrig, and for the next 2,150 games... Lou Gehrig would be playing first base because Wally Pipp had a headache. Now, I tell you that to tell you this. So everyone knows our red-headed drummer, Kyle Parsons. Good kid, but decided that he needed to go on spring break this week. Does anyone know the name of our percussionist today? Gehrig. Gehrig. So, so what camera am I on? Right, right here? Am I in the middle one? Yeah. Kyle, you've been warned. All right. <laughs> Okie dokie. Yeah, that had nothing to do with my sermon, by the way. So, because like, man, if he's already telling stories like that, what, is, what are we about to be into? So do me a favor, turn to Mark 9. So I, I tend to move through scripture fairly quickly um, and, and sometimes omit it altogether, as, as poor Trish found out. Apparently, I gave, I gave Brother Daryl a, a passage in Luke. I don't even remember giving him a passage in Luke that I was going to start out in. But we're not going to start out in Luke. We're going to start in Mark. Mark 9. In Mark 9, what we see is we see a man coming to Jesus with his son who had a demon. Like he had a demon that would, it made him mute, it gave him seizures, it would throw him into the fire, it would throw him into the water. So do me a favor, let's go ahead and start out in Mark 9, chapter, or excuse me, verse 17. So as is our custom, stand with me as we read God's word. A man in the, yes, Lord, we are here. I like it. That's all right. Oh, that's okay, man. That's, a, that's right. God's calling, man. God's going to do a work. He's trying to reach somebody in this room today. Can I get an amen? <laughs> all right, verse 17. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of his speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the, mouse, at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus. Everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my belief. 
Father, once again, we come to you thanking you for your word, thanking you for this day. Father, I ask that in this moment that you would use these scriptures, use our discussion to shape us, to mold us, guide us, direct us, just to reach out to us. Father, let these be your words to your hearts. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Have a seat. So I have two, I have two questions, in my mind at least, that start to kind of set the scene for the scenario. The first one is why... Why did this man bring his son to Jesus? See, for some reason, he brought his son to Jesus because he thought Jesus had at least a chance to be able to do something about it. Maybe he had been around to see Jesus heal someone else. Maybe he had heard about the miracles that Jesus had done in other places at other times. Maybe he had a friend who had a friend who had a niece who got healed by Jesus. Maybe he had a neighbor who had a cousin who had a brother who used to be blind that Jesus had given sight to. Whatever it is, for whatever reason, the man comes to Jesus and there was some reason why he walks up to Jesus and says, can you heal my son? There is no one in this room who would walk up to me and say, Kyle, Will you handle my retirement account? You have no reason to think that that is a thing that you should do towards me. It is the same thing here. The only reason that he is going to take his son to Jesus is because he thinks Jesus has the ability to do something about it. So it leads me to the second question. Why did the man say, if? See, he's there because he thinks that Jesus has the ability to do something about it, and yet he says, if you can do anything about this. See, experience tells him that no one can do anything about this. Experience tells him he's already gone to the disciples, and they couldn't do anything about it. I'm willing to bet, this is not scriptural, but I'm willing to bet that he's taken it to anyone who might possibly have the ability to do something about this. If you have children, if you have a spouse, if you have a sibling, if you have anyone in your life that you would rather die yourself than see them die, think about that scenario and think about what you would do in that situation to get them better. This little boy would have seizures. This little boy would be thrown into fire. He'd be thrown into water. And the father was seeking to do everything he could. He comes to Jesus and he says, if, because experience tells him no one can do anything about it because nobody's been able to. Otherwise, he wouldn't need to be here. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. It's kind of a interesting paradoxical statement, isn't it? I'm not big on literary devices. I couldn't stand literature when I was in college. Literature of the class, not literature in general. But I I read that and I go back to other paradoxical statements. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And I'm not kidding you, that's as far into that book as I got. (laughs) But we read this sentence and it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense at first, right? It doesn't seem to make a ton of sense. Lord, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Wait a minute. 
Either you do believe or you need help overcoming your unbelief. It, it can't be both, can it? See, we had an interesting situation. My very first semester in seminary, my favorite professor, Andrew Arterberry, my favorite professor of all time, anything that I've ever had, was leading the Gospels class. Gospels class was one of the very first classes that you took in seminary. So what happened is you would have a whole bunch of people who were in their very first semester in seminary. The seminary that I was in, there was a lot of students who had literally just graduated with like a ministry degree. And so they were 22 years old going into seminary. They had just finished working at a summer camp and, and they came off and, and they had this super spiritual high. I had just gotten into ministry myself. I was a little bit older. I was 30 years old, but I had just gotten into ministry myself. I was now in seminary. I was excited excited about what the Lord was doing. So you had a bunch of people in this room that were ready to go and take on the world for Jesus. And in this class, we go through, and, and obviously in, in the Gospels, we started in order. And so we went Matthew first. You come out of Matthew, and you're all excited about Matthew. You hit Mark. And now you're starting to talk about some of the differences between Matthew and Mark. And sometimes some of the difficulties that you run into when, you, when you're, you're dealing with the, 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 the differences in the way that Jesus reacts to different situations. And we come to Mark 9. And it was interesting, and I think Dr. Arterberry knew what was coming. And so what happens is we get there, and we get to Mark 9, and we run into this verse. Lord, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And you have a bunch of first semester seminary students. And we start talking about these verses. We start debating these verses. We're, we're talking about uh, the, the, the Aramaic and we're talking about the Greek and, and we're diving into entomology, etymology. I don't know, one deals with, with words, one deals with bugs. So it's one of the two, right? Um, and and we're, we're, we're diving into this and we're, we're, we're discussing this. And, and the way that our room is, is it's shaped like a square. Uh, like the tables are set up like a square. So we're looking at everybody. It's not a discussion with Dr. Arterberry because what I had noticed was Dr. Arterberry had kind of melded into the back wall. He was letting us have this discussion ourselves. And we're having this discussion, like if we can figure out the, the paradox, the dichotomy of this statement, then we can go and we can take that to the world and we can win the entire world for Jesus with just this one statement. Because it's such a strange statement to see in Scripture for a bunch of seminary students in their first semester. People who feel called to do this as a living. And so they dive right in. And Dr. Arterberry very quietly just sat in the back of the room and he would chime in from time to time, make sure we were still on the right path. But we eventually left the class. And as seminary went on, as we continued to do our ministries in the midst of seminary, I started to realize something. I started to realize why Dr. Arterberry was so quiet while we discussed this topic. Because that's life. See, there's a reason why we sit in this room, right? Maybe we have encountered Christ. Maybe we come here because we, we have seen his work in our life. We've seen his power. Maybe we're here because we have a neighbor who just seems a little bit different than everybody else. And you wanted to see what is it that, that when they talk about this faith that they have, what is it that they mean? Maybe you have gotten to a point in your life where you are so at the end of your rope that the only thing left is to walk through the doors of a church and just be like, okay, they claim that this has something that has power, they, that it has something to alter and change lives. I'm here to figure out what it is. There is a reason why we sit in this room the same way there is a reason why the man brought his son to Jesus. And yet, despite our belief, we still struggle with unbelief. We believe in the power of the cross. 
We believe in the power of the resurrection. We believe in the willingness and God's ability to forgive, save, and use broken people. But we doubt if he will or if he even wants to do that for me. It's so much easier to look across the aisle, to look across the pew, to look across the table and see how God is working in someone else's life, see how God is forgiving, how God is saving, how God is using someone else than it is to look in the mirror and apply those same principles to my life. We know so much about our life. We know so much about our thoughts. We dissect so much about our days that it becomes difficult for us to look at our own lives and believe the things that God has to say about us. So the question that I pose to you is, do you really believe what God has to say about you and your life? I believe, Lord, help me overcome my unbelief. Do you really believe that God has a plan for your life? Jared, as much as I love the man, has really stolen my thunder with this point because the last two weeks, that dude has used Jeremiah 29, 11 at length in both of his sermons. That's okay, though, because I'm still going to use it myself because it's important. Do you really believe that God has a plan for your life despite anything else that's going on around you? Jeremiah 29, 11 is written to a group of people that are being carried off into captivity, many of whom who are reading this verse would not be returned from captivity because of the length of time that it would be. 70 years before they came back. And even, even some of those wouldn't be coming back. There'd be reasons why they would still be in the land, that they would still be gone. They, maybe they would be too old to travel back. Maybe they would be too caught up to travel, whatever it is is that all of these things that God was telling them is that you, you, you will be brought back, your people will be brought back. I have a plan for what is going on in the midst of this difficult time in your life. Ephesians 2.10. See, Ephesians 2.8 and 9, we really use as a rallying cry. It is an exciting verse for us to read, but Ephesians 2.10, I want you to look at this. It says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There is, there is something that God has created us to do where we are, when we are, and how we are right now. Here's the interesting part about that. That is an exciting verse to read. Does anyone remember the circumstances that Paul left Ephesus? He left after a riot. Paul was in Ephesus. He's preaching in Ephesus. And there is a riot because in, the, in Ephesus is the temple of Artemis. The temple of Artemis is a massive money-making machine for all of the people in Ephesus because all of, the, all of the idols and all of the things that went along with the worship of Artemis made money on top of money for the people that were around it. And as Paul came in and Paul started to preach Christ and the Christians started to love on the people around them and, and people were altered and people were changed and people were moving away from the temple of Artemis and the cult of Artemis, these people were losing money. And the last thing that you want to do when you're changing lives is impact somebody's pocketbook. And so what happened is they started a riot to get rid of these Christians. They started a riot in such a way that even when people tried to stand and defend 
Christianity, stand and defend Paul, stand and defend the church, they would start yelling, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They yelled, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two straight hours. That's biblical too. For two straight hours, they yelled at the top of their lungs, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Does that sound like a hospitable environment? If you have ever had a toddler, you know that two straight hours of yelling is not hospitable. And yet, later, Paul wrote in a letter that God has created you for a purpose. He has created you to do the work that he laid out for you in advance regardless of the situation that you're in. Because right now, folks, in Ephesus, you're not in the most wonderful situation possible. What situation is it? What choices is it that you think God is not going to use you through? What, is it, what, what, what decisions have you made in your past that you think there's no way that God would be willing to use someone who made that decision, someone who made that choice, someone who did those things in their life? Are you too young? Miss Heather harps on it all the time. Ain't nobody too young. Are you too old? I have a humorous situation. I did not ask him to tell this story, so I'll ask forgiveness immediately. This morning... John Stanislaw taught the youth for us. Here's the deal. Ten days ago, John asked me if I ever needed help, he would be more than happy. John has a history and ministry, and it was awesome. I was so excited for John to teach. He came and he asked me, and I said, John, as soon as he asked me, I go, John, I got an opportunity for you. I'm preaching. I'm preaching not this Sunday, but I'm preaching next Sunday. Would, would you be interested in doing it then? And John started laughing. I was like, wait a second. He asked me, and now he's laughing in my face. What's going on here? And that's not really how it happened. But, but he started laughing, and he goes, man, God really does have a sense of humor. As old as I am, and I'm going to be teaching the young, the young people over in the youth. I said, you know what? And, and, and here's the deal. And, 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 he, and he says that, and, and, and he says he makes, he makes the joke. And God used that. And God continues to use John. John has come and does so much. John, God continues to He uses him this morning with the youth. John, I love you. Can I ask how old you are? Am I allowed to? How old are you? Fixing to be 80. Fixing to be 80. Right? You're not too old to be used for anything, to reach to anyone. You're not too young to be used to reach to anyone in any situation. You're not too weird. You're not too strange. Why are y'all laughing? And you're all looking at me while you're laughing. <laughs> but it's true. So you, you, we say all these things as to why God can't use us. You do, you do realize, you do realize that God used deceivers and murderers and wayward prophets. He used those that were far too old, those who were barren, and those who appeared crazy. He used women in a time when women had no power. He used children in a time when they were mere burdens. He used those that were revered by society for all of the wrong reasons and those that were hated by society because they were perceived as different. He spoke through the stuttering, used the spear of the weakest, knocked down walls with trumpets, and fed the ungrateful with bread that appeared from nothing. He used a young girl who was accused of adultery 
a faithful man who had to listen to the whispers about his wife, a stable and an enemy's cross to bring about the salvation to the world. What makes you think he won't use you regardless of the situations that you are in and the decisions that you have made? Lord, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Do you really believe that the Lord delights in showing you mercy? Micah 7, 8, excuse me, 7, 18 and 19 says this. Who is a God like you? who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnants of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our sins into the depths of the sea. A related one is Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. Through The Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions will not fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. See, one of the things that I have found is that when we are trying to care for and minister to other people, it is very easy to emphasize the love of God. I'm not saying that's wrong. But it's very easy for us to emphasize the love of God when we are talking to other people, when we are caring for other people. But whenever it comes to our own lives, what happens is we tend to emphasize the glory and the holiness of God to show just how wretched we are and how unworthy we are for God to even think about us, to concern himself with us, to love us and to show us Mercy, And here's the problem with that, is that we cannot separate the holiness of God from the love of God. What happens is we have this tendency to to use this as a scale that we're trying to balance. That for the holiness of God to raise, we have to lower the love of God. That if, if the holiness of God raises higher and we hold that high then the love of God we drop down to show that he can't love us because of what we have done. Or we take that and, and at times what we will do is we will, we will try to raise the love of God and, 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 and maybe that, that forces us in, in, in viewing this to bring down the holiness of God. Here's the deal. These two are not separated. These are both key characteristics of who God is. It is not a scale It is who he is. Think about two parts of your personality that if they were to take it away, you would not be who you are. That's what the holiness of God and the love of God are. You can't remove one from the other. And yet, we so often do that when it comes to ourselves. God delights in showing mercy. What do you delight in? We've talked about this before. I think I've talked about it in, in terms of uh, the verse in Psalm 37 from the, from the pulpit before. But what do you delight in? Jared, our beloved pastor, delights in where he is from in Henderson, Texas. I'm glad you left. First service didn't find that very funny. It's Henderson, Texas. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. If you're from Henderson, we love Henderson, Okay. Delights in Henderson. He delights in Henderson, Texas so much. And you want to know how I know he delights in Henderson, Texas? We talk about it all the time. How many, how many times does he talk about being from Henderson right here from the pulpit? 
In staff meeting, we talk about the food in Henderson. We talk about the businesses in Henderson. We talk about all kinds of stuff. From He genuinely delights in that. And so it comes from his lips all the time. Heather delights in balloons and she blows them up all the time. What you delight in, you will do all the time. Why do we think that's not true of God? If God delights in showing you mercy, he will show you mercy again and again and again and again because that's who he is. See, we want to take this and we want to, to, to beat ourselves down with the holiness of God, refusing to believe the verses that we read. Have you ever asked the question, maybe out loud, maybe quietly, why is God punishing me? Why does God hate me? See, you've, you've reconciled the necessity to feel guilt over an unfortunate, even a horrible situation, thinking that it only makes sense that God must be angry with you, taking out something in the past, maybe even taking out something that you think you might do in the future as payment for what's going on right now. See, there's no dichotomy in God. You and I have dichotomy in ourselves. We, we mess up at times. Sometimes we love someone and yet hold a grudge against them. There is no dichotomy in God, though. Do you really believe that God hurls your sins into the seas? That he hurls your sins as far as the east is from the west? Or do you think that he's holding something against you even though he says he loves you. And don't get me wrong, this is where people start to get a little uncomfortable. I'm not saying that we don't deal with the consequences of our sin. If I were to go out and have an affair and I were to repent, genuinely repent and turn back to God, he would forgive me for my sins. Does not mean that I would not have to suffer the consequences when it comes to my wife, when it comes to my family, when it comes to my church but it does mean that God has forgiven me if I turn back to him genuinely. You and I tend to be far more willing to attribute punishment to ourselves from God than God is willing to actually do it to you. And you want to know how I know that? Because 2,000 years ago, before you had done anything wrong, God sent his son to live a perfect life that you and I cannot live and to die on a cross, taking on the sins of the world that you had not even committed yet and forgiving them. So that way you could experience oneness with God because he delights in showing you Mercy. Do you really believe that the Lord delights in showing you mercy? Lord, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Do you really believe that you are enough for God? So this became a little bit of a group project. 
I love my college group. Y'all know me. Y'all know that. I love my college group. And so what I did, I started to, as I was digging through this sermon, I started to realize that, that I wanted to get a little bit more input. So I started talking to the college group. I started going through some of these ideas with them trying to get their impressions, trying to get their thoughts. And, and the interesting thing was, is one of the college students that I work with routinely, uh, we sat across from each other and, and I said that. I said, do you really believe that you are enough for God? And she sat there and she went like this. She went, like I just poked her with a needle or something. And, and, and I could tell what she was thinking in her head, so I followed it up. Before she could say anything, I followed it up with this. I said, what do you feel that you need to add to yourself so that way you don't feel like you're letting God down? What is it that we feel that we have to add or sustain or maintain so that way we don't feel like God's going to give up on loving us? Do this for me. In your head, finish this sentence. If I don't do blank I don't know if God will love me anymore. What is it that Jesus required of the man in Mark 9? I'll go back, I'll read it again for you. It starts off, uh, we'll start off in, we'll go ahead and just start off in 23. If you can, Jesus said, everything is possible for him who believes Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Jesus goes on to heal the boy. I know we didn't read that, but he goes on to heal the boy, cast the demon out. What is it that Jesus required of the man in that verse? What is it the man brought in the first place? He brought the, he brought the boy, and yet he admits that he has an incomplete, a broken faith, a faith that is struggling. He goes, I believe that there is something here that I need to be here for, and yet I don't fully believe. He, he completely, fully, and 100% had nothing to offer, and Jesus saved his son anyway. What is it that we come to Christ with thinking that we have to add to ourself. He required nothing. I have a question for you. I have a question for you. When Jesus said this, he said, everything is possible for him who believes. Who of the two characters in this story is the one who actually believes and allows the son to be healed? Audience participation is willing. Jesus! Jesus is the one who believed. Everything is possible for him who believes. How often do you attribute... Sorry, I'm slamming my water bottle. How often do you, do you think you have to attribute that verse to yourself? How often do you think that you have to attribute that verse to yourself? Everyone, everything is possible for him who believes. The thing about Jesus is Jesus is the one who believes. Jesus is the one who healed. Jesus is the one who saves. All of these things that we think that we have to get done in order for Christ to love us, in order for Christ to save us, in order for Christ to act in the lives of the people around us, he's already done because he's the one who believes. And yet... We think we're not enough. Doesn't mean that there's not things that we continue to do because we love 
our Savior, because we worship and fall at the feet of our Savior, because we trust Him as Lord. And when you trust someone as Lord, you follow their commands, you give your life to them, and you do what it is that they say. Acts 17, 24 to 28, let me read you this. It says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, through, find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your volunteer hours. He doesn't need your theological knowledge. He doesn't need your avid prayer life or a perfect memory of scripture. Are those things that we are drawn to because of the relationship that we have with him? Yes. Is he going to love you less and cast you off? Because last night your kids were sick, you got home late, you got no sleep, and so you had to get up really fast, put together the weakest school lunches you ever have put together in your life, get everyone to school, and then you get to work and realized, oh no, I didn't pray, God must be mad at me. God loves you just as you are with no strings attached. Do you really believe that you are enough for God? Lord, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Do you really believe what it is that God has to say about the way that he feels about you, the way he wants to use you, the way that he forgives you, and the way that he loves you? Do you really believe or do you withhold a little bit back because you just don't know how he could? So here's the deal. I'm going to wrap it up with this. In the book of James, James covers a lot, a lot of different topics, a lot of awesome topics. I love the book of James. One of the topics that James covers is he covers the fact that, that faith will result in action. Faith will result in action. But I want you to do me a favor. So I, I hit a little bit of literary stuff at the beginning. Here, here's a little bit more literary stuff for you. There's two types of verbs. There's an action verb, a doing verb, and there's a being verb, an existing verb. Okay. Whenever we talk about this, it, 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 it would be wrong of me after everything that I just preached to say, okay, now you believe, now go do this, 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 and this. That would be a dichotomy that we talked about God does not have. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Do me a favor. This week, I don't know what your week looks like. I don't know what your day looks like. Do your best to find some time early in the morning, late at night, lunchtime. Sit in your car if it's quiet. Go sit at a park if you can. Go sit on your back porch. Sit in your bedroom and open your bedroom window and let a bird serenade you. But I want you to just sit there and, and I want you, maybe read Mark 9 again. Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. And I want you, here's the action. 
I want you just to exist in the understanding that in all of the parts of Scripture that God shows us, all of the ways that he used imperfect people, all of the ways that he reached out to people that no one else would reach out to, that he, he healed people that were seen useless to society, that's in there for a purpose. It's in there for us. Exist in the fact that God has a plan for you, that God delights in showing you mercy, and that you are what God wants, not all of the actions that you can bring. Father, once again, we come to you and we thank you for this day. We thank you so much for this opportunity to be here, to worship you and to seek you. Father, and we ask that in this time, that you would just work, that you would move. Father, that our hearts would be open to the fact that you love us. However it is that we define the concept of love, Lord, that you are the perfect defining concept, that you care for us, that you reach out for us, that you want us. Lord, work in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So I'll be down here at the front. However you choose to respond is fine. If you want to stand and sing at the top of your lungs, awesome. If you want to sit in your seat and pray, if you want to grab a friend, come to the front, go to the back, however it functions. But I hope that in this time, that as we respond to whatever it is that the Lord is doing in your heart, that you would just take a moment to realize that the promises that God has made in Scripture for you are for you. They're not for a perfect version of you. They're not for the people around you, but for you. So I'll be at the front. If you want to come, if, if you want to find out more about this God and Savior that we talk about, if you need prayer, if you come to join, however it be, as we respond.